on the very idea, a philosophy podcast. Hello, everyone. I'm smack dab in the middle of a rainy season in my corner of the earth, which can be a bit of a pain for me because um, I bicycle for about 26 kilometers a day. At least I pedal through the lush green jungly forest and rice fields on my way to work. Um, but today, rainy season presents itself as a gentle mist only. And uh, that's okay with me. Not Gentle mist, but not so big on the... Uh, it's kind of a cool humidity. Not a uh, all-encompassing, devouring humidity. So I'm okay with it. So, let's get on with the game. I will say a quote from a famous philosopher, and you tell me who said that quote. Heck, I'll say this quote twice. I'll throw in a few hints on top of that, and I'll give you a generous uh, five seconds to crank the gears in your head to come up with a come up with a name. Here we go. The con- here's the quote: "The contrary of good is bad, but the contrary of bad is either good or another evil." Talking about ethics here, let's hear that one more time. The contrary of good is bad, but the contrary of bad is either good or another evil. Let me give you a hint. Uh, this esteemed teacher had a son he called uh, Nick and uh, quite liked to look at extremes and the reasonableness that uh, lay in the middle of those extremes. Let me count down. Five, four, three, two, one. The answer is none other than that third century phenom on the BC side, Aristotle. And I guess uh, if good can only have bad as its um, contrary, yet bad can have um, multiple contraries, that may force us to believe that there's a whole lot of ways to be bad, but uh, the path of the true and the good is quite narrow. Bad news for us, bad news for humanities. Humanity. And it flies in the face of what his wise old teacher, Plato, said, namely, that uh, only one thing can be contrary to something. Hmm. Yeah, so I guess uh, faithfully following the tenets of your teacher is not on the list of Aristotle's good things. Well, unless Plato's true lesson was to uh, think for yourself, which I guess it kind of was. Not sure. Don't know that much about the ancient Greeks. Anyway, on to the main of the episode. Last time, we talked about David Hume. David Hume and his theory of practical rationality. Hume, he's famous for saying, "'Tis not unreasonable for me to prefer the destruction of the whole world to the scratching of my finger." Now, that doesn't sound very nice on the surface. What's so bad about the world? What's so great about Hume's fingers? Well, we can interpret David Hume's quote to mean that he must have indeed really been fond of those fingers, but also that reason. Reason does not pass judgment on the ends, on goals, on values, on the things that are important in life. Reason only guides us to the best means to our non-rationally chosen ends. So, apparently for Hume, there's this divide between the realm containing task-based work of finding efficient means of getting things done, 
which reason can show us the right or wrong way of doing something, and this in the realm of desire and value. And in the realm of desire and value, reason yeah, must um, reason must remain silent. Well, for Hume, anyway, this is kind of a divide between the empirical discovery of efficient means and the uh, normative world of what we should care about. But philosopher Peter Railton, who we'll be looking at today, says understanding Hume in this way is a bit like Hume being given the six o'clock news treatment. His finger quote, Hume's finger quote, is a snippet taken out of context, and from reading Hume, we can see that he gives a much more robust role for reason in the determination of values and uh, harnessing and orientation of desire. Peter Railton, he chooses to uh, tackle this divide between the empirical and the normative, uh, between belief and desire, in other words, by showing how it fits with the other often discussed aspects of David Hume's moral theorizing, theorizing, the vaunted is-ought distinction. You know, that's another famous Hume distinction. A common understanding of Hume is that even an empirical is sentence reporting some fact about the world can never serve as a reason for a normative ought sentence about how we should act. But Railton, Railton claims this is a bit of a cartoonish understanding of Hume's claim. Railton says that Hume recognized that some is sentences must necessarily necessarily be relied on to get our oughts. We must have accurate, we must have accurate descriptive accounts of the external world and human psychology in order to determine appropriate means to ends, after all. Good luck on your uh, noble goal of curing cancer if you don't have uh, extremely accurate details concerning how to go about that and the object of your study. Yeah, you got to know a lot of is things about cancer, a lot of empirical data in order to, um, you know, accomplish that goal. Likewise, accurate understandings of human capacities must inform your ought sentences. Hmm? So can sentences, you know, about your capacities seem to inform ought sentences and can sentences are themselves dependent on is sentences, you know, describing capacities accurately and abilities. So there needs to be a bit of a scaling back on this sharp cleavage, just sharp division between is and ought. An ought, after all, is only sensible. It's only sensible only rational if it is informed by your capacity to carry it out yeah further Hume believed that beliefs themselves were not free from the sentimental feeling part of our psychology so the empirical was often informed by the normative our ought normative beliefs often fueled our discovery of is sentences and propositions Belief for Hume was as much uh, directed by our own ambitions and goals as anything. What we choose to focus on, what we choose to measure, the inquiries, the inquiries and questions we choose to make are uh, influenced by our uh, values. Science is objective, sure, but the direction of our inquiry at every turn, it's value-oriented. Hmm? There is a near infinitive amount of ways to collect data. Just think about that, yeah? From our external world hmm? and universe. We are directed along certain paths 
by our inquiries, you know, we're directed along certain paths of our inquiries by our goals, what we care about. In the words of Peter Railton, who, unlike me, probably read the actual David Hume outside of some intro philosophy course, in his words, Railton words, for in part one of the treatise, Hume has concluded that belief is more properly an act of the sensitive than of the cogitative part of our nature. End quote. Beliefs are not simply aimed at truth. If it was so narrowly focused in this way, people would restrict themselves to mere tautologies, you know, if all they want to believe is truths. So there's something more value-driven going on in belief formation, even in math and the sciences. Believers tend to have multidimensional norms, permitting trade-offs between uh, content and uh, evidence, explanatoriness and reliability, particularity and uh, generality, relevance and alternatives. Thus, belief is nothing but a peculiar feeling, different from the simple conception, according to Hume. Historical Hume here seems not uh, to accept the form of belief, desire, asymmetry, the uh, cleavage that uh, seems to be central to neo-Humeanism. That very strict interpretation of David Hume. For him, a belief is not a mere idea for Hume, but a manner of conceiving an idea. We can't help but be human, even when we are, you know, scientists. So, historical Hume, he dis- uh, he disagrees with neo-Humeans, these strict interpreter- uh, interpreters of Hume, about the is-ought distinction and the role of values and beliefs. Well, who should we believe? It's not scripture, so we don't have to believe the historical Hume. You know, it's not biblical. Hmm? But uh, Peter Railton, he believes that uh, there's plenty of reason to believe the historical Hume over the uh, neo-Humeans. Well, according to Railton, the historical Hume's view is closer to the contemporary psychology of belief than the neo-Humean position. Even the much maligned association of ideas uh, that uh, Hume goes on about that underlies Hume's account of inference and reasoning and of the a propos of discourse has come in for new life in contemporary neuroscience as connectionists or network models of the brain have gained strength against more classical computational models. So even uh, different things Hume has said about psychology that fits in with his greater theories. So moreover, cognitive psychology, evolutionary psychology, and neuroscience are, well, they are giving increasing emphasis to the role of feeling in cognition, in the role of the normative. Antonio Damasio's work is, you know, he's quite famous in this regard, you know, talking about the role of emotion and our values in cognition. Can't really neatly separate the two. Things like uh, default trust and empathy, preference for the familiar in belief formation, and hello, echo chambers there, yeah, you know, and the very emotional pain of cognitive dissonance suggest at some point in our evolutionary line, all those wires, they got mishmashed. They got tangled up in uh, one another, and so that it looks like a meaty version of the mess behind my TV cabinet. That's probably not a good analogy because those wires were never separate in the first place. They were always interconnected. You know, our wires in our brain between emotion and 
and uh, the empirical, between the normative and the empirical. And the divisions are the artificial conceptual distinctions that we uh, place on them. So, for Railton, we have emotions on the empirical rational side of the equation. Well, how do we fatten up the role of rationality on the moral side of human life? After all, Hume still believes that the world does not provide us desires that uh, reason uncovers. Hmm? He says in the treatise, evaluative attitudes are original existences. Hmm, they're just there. Rather than copies of representations of the world that could be strictly speaking true or false. And since reason is concerned with matters of truth or falsity, it follows that morality cannot be based on reason alone. So it is still very much David Hume, the David Hume that we commonly know. Well, not strictly the neo-human one. Anyway, well, first, we should put to bed the idea that following our desires in the human sense has something hedonistic or selfish about it. Hmm? Yeah. Desires for humor, more often than not, other regarding. The loving parent likes the idea of helping his children without requiring yeah, a reference to his own well-being. And all of us can experience some measure of sympathy for others, which makes uh, us experience their feelings immediately in ourselves by a kind of emotional resonance and be moved to respond accordingly. And those are the words of David Hume. Thus, the minds of men are mirrors to one another, and this sentiment and sympathy allows for the coordinated conventions and cooperation that allows society to function. Mm. Uh, I thought this might be a bit naive on the part of Hume, you know. But when you really think about the sheer level of cooperation, you know, both overt and implicit, and buying into the system that allows society to um, function... Most of us really are tuned in to the same page, yeah? Cooperation and coordination is so natural. We often only recognize the breakdowns. But uh, Hume is still an instrumental rationalist. So what happens when it just isn't in our self-interest to cooperate in a particular situation, when it clashes too much with our own desires and goals, when it is better to just break a contract or an agreement because, well... It suits us. Hmm. Well, Peter Railton suggests that we need to think of self-coordination over time with others. And this could provide grounds for a wider Humean conception of what instrumental rationality really involves. And it could lead us to see that the most rational choice in the long haul is to cooperate or keep a promise. In Railton's words, the fault line, the fault might lie less with the idea that rationality is uh, instrumental than with the overly simple ways in which the instrumental principle has uh, usually been conceived. So we just we shouldn't conceive it in too narrow of a way, in too simple of a way. Next, we need to see that Hume's idea that reason does not deliver values to us is more, it's more a comment about the origin of our values. Hume's point is more to emphasize that we are raised in a particular culture with a given set of values, and we must accept those values ab initio, at the beginning. Hmm? Why? Because we have to start from, yeah, we got to start from somewhere, don't we? Uh, but that shouldn't bother us too much, because in a similar way, Hume says that we have to just accept the truth, our senses, that accept the truth, our senses, to be reliable gauges of empirical information in the same way. Yeah. So we got to trust our customs, our uh, morality that we are we are raised in, in the same way that we got to trust our eyes, we got to trust our ears, our senses. You know. Uh, so the same thing applies to both empirical data, gaining empirical data, and gaining normative data. You know, we can question it at certain points, but we can't question it from the get-go. 
But in Railton's words, the question of rationality and belief and action is not how to start from scratch, but, well, where to go from here? And where to begin the dynamic process of belief revision other than with what we now find credible? Or the dynamic process of desire revision other than with what we now find desirable? we got to start somewhere. So when we find other sensitivities to other values and goals growing in us, as we all do, as we mature, we weigh the old against the new, yeah? Not all at once, of course, you know, Neuroth's boat, but uh, piecemeal. And our hypergoods that reign over large swaths of our lives, that's a little bit Charles Taylor in there, and particular goods that may conflict with hypergoods and each other. Mm, we've got to weigh all these together, particular goods and hypergoods and life goals. And instrumental rationality cannot determine point blank the rationality of a certain goal objectively. But it can allow you to reason and evaluate which particular goals fit best with your conception of your good life. This way, and in Railton's words, Hume's theory thus allows substantive elements of reasonableness and substantive capacities to be responsive to reasons into his account of belief in action without requiring an a priori justification. Such elements can continue to earn our allegiance in the long run by vindicating, though not validating, themselves over the course of experience, stabilizing themselves in our mental economy rather than destabilizing or undermining themselves. In this, Hume's theory may come closer to fitting common sense notions of what is rational or reasonable. Mm-hmm. This process resembles a kind of um, dynamic reflective equilibrium and allows for a good deal of revision as experience grows. Railton. Peter Railton sees David Hume's account of the role of sentiments and passions as components of moral conduct and public justice as having an important explanatory advantage over rationalist theories, you know, like Kant. Railton thinks that we gain a lot of flexibility in our explanations by adopting Hume's perspective. Feelings, motives, and beliefs that are not necessarily moral, like cooperating only for our own advantage, you know, in some instances, can be understood in a new way, showing how a non-moral sentiment can actually work towards morality, you know, Mm, kind of selfish cooperation. It happens. And sometimes this style of reluctant cooperation is necessary to get things off the ground in life. We know it. Kant can only call it immoral because it didn't come from the good place. You know, Immanuel Kant, if it doesn't come from the good place, from the right place, he can just call it immoral. But Hume, now Hume, he's more human. He can show where it comes from, you know, and why it can still work for moral ends, you know, even though it comes from a non-moral place. Further, Hume's uh, account, it dispenses with special purpose, motivational, or cognitive faculties. We don't need any, any notions of the good or the goodwill that seem obscure 
obscure and unclear and can help us, uh, you know, and uh, this clarification, it can help us see how morality could be attainable by, you know, the normal human psychology that uh, science at this moment understands us to possess. We may someday find the goodwill inside of us, but mm, we haven't uh, yet. I actually, I actually quite like Kant. So I actually do hope that he's right. So I didn't mean to sound too sarcastic. Anyway. However, since the force of morality, according to Hume, depends upon sentiment and desire and not on reason, alone, what can we say to the bad man or woman, the bad man, the bad woman, who lacks moral motivation, one who just wants to be bad? Well, even for Immanuel Kant, he must acknowledge that an inner motivation is necessary for one to follow moral duty and obligation. You know, if Hume thinks we need inner sympathy, Kant also thinks we need an inner goodwill. So there's no real big difference. And sometimes, you know, that inner morality, that inner sympathy, that inner sentiment, it's just absent. Mm -hmm. In those cases, Kant can call us irrational. Hume can't. He can perhaps say, what a pity. Mm -hmm. But he can't call us irrational in and of itself. For David Hume, for David Hume, even though reason has a large role um, in practical reason, then the sparse one often attributed to him, Facts about what motivating reasons we have will always depend upon contingent facts about we, our world, and our relation to it. Mm-hmm. What did our relation to it happen to be like? In Railton's words, no particular set of desires is a condition on rationality. Perhaps that is as it should be. We should never have expected otherwise to find this particular set of desires. But all this comes as a disappointment to some of the loftiest aspirations of philosophy. That's uh, Peter Railton's nice, pretty words. Now, anyway, so I hope I gave a bit of a thicker understanding of David Hume. Yeah, so he's just not someone who cares a lot about his finger getting scratched. Yeah, there's quite a bit more to him, and he's quite sympathetic. Anyway, thank you for listening. On the very idea, a philosophy podcast.